0: Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group. To access additional content, including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. For March, we are reading Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen. And for April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Kristen Bird about I Love It When You Lie. Kristen has a master's in literature and teaches high school English in Houston, Texas. She lives with her husband, three daughters, and their rescue lab. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating.
0: All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome, Kristen. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well, thank you.
0: I'm so glad you're here because I just recently finished I Love It When You Lie and thought it was fabulous.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I love your podcast, so I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. So
0: before we dive in, I would love for you to tell me a little bit more about what I Love It When You Lie is about for those that won't have read it yet.
1: Yes, it's about three sisters who are raised in North Alabama, in the Appalachian foothills, and their beloved grandmother raises them. And once she dies, they all return home to her funeral, and each of them brings with them a problematic man in their lives. And by the end of the weekend, they decide that perhaps one of those men should be in the grave with their beloved grandmother.
0: And we don't know who it is as we're reading, which is one of my favorite things about the book, is that as the sisters and the sister-in-law are all telling their stories, you're trying to figure out, okay, who is it that ended up in the ground?
1: Right. I love mysteries of all kinds, whether it's suspense, thriller, or cozy mysteries. And so I wanted to see if there was some way I could subvert the typical expectation that you know who died in the beginning and still keep it compelling enough for people to want to read.
0: So how was it writing that? And did you have to do a lot of editing to make sure you weren't giving too much away, but that you were including enough details that it could lead the reader toward who it was going to be, and then eventually it would make sense who it was?
1: Yes. I actually wrote the three sisters' voices first, and then I decided to go back in and insert the sister-in-law's voice, Uh, she is an outsider to the town because she's from the North and she isn't quite accepted into the community in the way that she would like to be. And so I was able to play around a bit more with her voiciness and decide what kind of information to give away and which to hold back by including her. So that really helped me with the, the reveal part of mystery and the slow unraveling.
0: Because as I was reading, I kept thinking it must be really difficult to provide enough detail to keep the reader moving along and following the story, but not provide so much until you get close to the end to be like, okay, it's got to be this particular person
1: that died. Right. I probably read some parts of the book 30, 35 times, (laughs) just tweaking things, changing things, adding little details because I'm not an outliner. So really the fine tuning comes in those drafts and the multiple passes.
0: Absolutely. And adding in another character, it sounds like. And I really thought Stephanie added a lot to the story, especially because so much of the time she's talking to the sheriff.
1: Right. And she actually had just a few chapters here and there when I first added her. And then my mom read it. She's one of my what I call alpha readers. She reads it before it's in any kind of shape for anyone to actually read it. (laughs) And she's the one who said, I want more of this character. She loved her voice. And so then I ended up going in and putting even more chapters in. So it was kind of like this, this slow bricklaying of her voice in the novel.
0: I love that character, too, because one of the things I enjoyed so much about the story was how close the sisters are. And so it was really nice to have this character that was apart from them and obviously had some history, is in the same family, but doesn't feel like she has really ever been accepted by the sisters. So you don't know, is she telling the truth or is she going to be spinning things in her own direction? Because you assume the sisters are going to cover for each other, which was another thing I loved. I really felt their relationship and how close they were and how regular they were was what made your book. Because I get kind of tired of all of these just crazy women in thrillers that, you know, are doing all this stuff I'd never do and they're unkind and you can't relate to them. And I just felt like it was nice to have these everyday people.
1: Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I actually based the characters very loosely, of course, on the relationship that I have with my siblings. And my brother is nothing like Walker, just to be clear. (laughs) But there are four of us. I'm actually the oldest and the sibling bond that we share is really solid. (laughs) You know, we have each other's backs, we're there for each other. So I actually dedicated the novel to them.
0: I saw I was dedicated to someone with three people, so I figured whoever they were was who the book was based on, but I didn't realize it was your siblings. I love that because that was something that struck me as I was reading that they just had such a delightful bond, and you knew they were going to do anything for each other. So to have Stephanie as kind of the foil to that was good as well.
1: Oh, thank you. Yes. And the character of Stephanie, I actually partly got that idea from when I was a child and I was living in North Alabama. That's where my extended family is from. and. One of my cousins married what people referred to as that woman. <laughs> and she was from the North. And there was, I remember even as a kid wondering, why is there so much suspicion around this woman just because she talks differently than us? <laughs> and so the character kind of came to me that way, you know, of an outsider who comes into this really tight knit family and. No one quite accepts her and she doesn't quite understand why they are the way they are. And that dynamic just really intrigued me and stayed with me from childhood.
0: I love that. That woman. (laughs) So you decided to set the story in Alabama because that's where your family is.
1: Yes. They're from a couple of little towns around there. One is Albertville, Alabama, which is near the Boaz outlets, which were really popular in the 1980s and 1990s. People would almost take pilgrimages to them. And it's between Birmingham and Huntsville. And then I have another part of my family that's in the Athens-Madison area. But it's all in this beautiful kind of hill country of, you know, it's not mountains, but it's still just spectacular driving over the hill and seeing all the fall colors and autumn. And I just love it there. And so I, I thought I have to place a mystery here.
0: So because the story is set there and you have a lot of family there, is everybody trying to figure out who they are in the book?
1: (laughs) Well, my sisters know who they are.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly.
1: And they're portrayed
0: well, so that's good.
1: Yes. And my other family has not read it yet, so my extended family will read it when it comes out. But they do know about it, and I actually read the first chapter to them when I returned home a year or so ago uh, for a funeral. And so they got a big kick out of it. They think it's great that so many Southern sayings are in it, and that it's based loosely on our family.
0: So was it hard to keep the sisters distinct, trying to write three characters and then Stephanie is the fourth? Did you really base them loosely on your sisters, or did you have to create distinct personalities for each of them?
1: I really did base them loosely on my sisters. Of course, my sisters haven't gone through any of these actual scenarios, but when I put one of them in a scenario such as June losing a baby. I thought, okay, how would my sister react to this experience? And then I wrote it based on how I thought she would react. That's really a helpful way for me to make characters fully formed instead of, you know, just being surface level. And then another way that I helped set them apart was deciding how southern I wanted their voices to be because one of my beta readers who is actually a colleague at my school who I love and I love her editorial notes. She said, after reading one of the early drafts, I can't tell how Southern this novel is supposed to be. (laughs) And so I thought, oh, okay. So I'm not being consistent in some way. So what I ended up doing was making the oldest sister, Tara, the one who's been there the longest, who has pretty much stayed in her hometown, except for about six months when she went away to college as a freshman. I made her the most deeply Southern of the three. And then from there, it was just kind of a spectrum. And that helped me distinguish their voices and the kind of phrasing and the way that they would think.
0: And I thought it was interesting because she's married to a pastor.
1: (laughs) Yes, and I am too. So I told my husband, who is a worship pastor, actually, I said, when the staff at church reads this, you need to tell them I have never stolen any money (laughs) from the church. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's why I was like, okay, Kristen, you went there and what is the church going to think? So that's pretty funny.
1: But yes, I'm sure you
0: wanted him to go in and say, okay, listen, I promise this was not based on something that has really happened in our lives.
1: Yes. And actually, our church is very cute about the way they react to me as a writer. They all turn out for my events and they promote my book on social media and they're just like so thrilled that I'm writing in the genre where like people are dying, which is really (laughs) interesting to me. (laughs) That is hilarious.
0: (laughs) You're like, huh, but that's so nice that they're so supportive.
1: Yes, it really is. It is.
0: Well, what was the highlight of writing this one?
1: The highlight of writing this one was tapping into the character of Gran. She is never alive when the novel is happening, but her voice is still on the page in memories that the girls have of her. The sisters specifically have of her. And my grandmother passed away while I was writing this novel, and it was during COVID, so we weren't able to travel to Alabama to the funeral. We had one of those Zoom funerals that's very awkward, you know? And so a few months later, when it was safe to travel, I actually had returned home for my uncle's funeral. That was my grandmother's son. And I got to see her grave. Uh, I got to feel the place. If that makes any sense, you know, just re experience kind of coming home. And to me, it was really a healing thing to experience that as I also grieved the loss of my own beloved grandmother. She did not raise me, but we were extremely close. I would say that I was probably one of the people that she expected to be there for her, watch her age, and make sure that she was taken care of, that kind of thing. We were just very tight.
0: Did some of her sayings get translated into the book as grand sayings?
1: Yes. And actually some of the actions too. My Nana told a story of when she was a young mother and she had both of her boys asleep at home and her husband, my, what we call Paw Paw, he was working a night shift at the chicken feed plant and he got off early and came home in the middle of the night and she got up with her shotgun and met him at the door. (laughs) (laughs) And he had to scream out who he was and that he wasn't an intruder because she was actually about to take care of business and protect her family.
0: (laughs) So can you imagine how horrible that would have been? Mm. And, you know, that to me, going back to your grandmother passing away during COVID and not being able to be there for the service, that is one of the hardest things still to me about COVID is missing this period of time with some of these older people and what they were going through. And not being able to be at the hospital with them or attend their funerals, you really do lose something there. It's so cathartic to go to a funeral, I think, for someone that you were very close to and to see the burial, do all of that, and to miss out on that would be so difficult.
1: Yes, it was. And the last time that I spoke to her was actually on the phone and because it was in the hospital room and it was on her cell phone, I believe, and I'm sure the nurse was holding it for her. It was very um, sporadic and splotchy. We were going in and out. And so for that to be the last memory was also really hard. At the same time, I'm really glad that I got to say goodbye to her and that I got to hear her voice for a last time. And I'm also glad that I got to return home for the funeral and be with family, even if it was a year later.
0: Absolutely. And see where she's buried and be able to commune there and just sort of, you know, have your memories. Right. How did you decide on your character names?
1: I wanted them to be Southern character names, and actually one of my good friends that I teach with is named Tara, and she has one of those very Southern sweet voices, but then she can also be a really fiery pistol and protect the people that she loves. (laughs) So I thought that that would be a perfect name for her. June and Clementine were, again, just Southern names that I liked and that I felt really fit kind of the atmosphere of the town.
0: And then Stephanie sounded more Northern.
1: I guess so. <laughs> I guess it sounded more like an outsider to me.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. I'm always so curious how authors choose names because names do really signify things, as you just mentioned, Southern names. And so I always wonder, like, how do you go about picking them?
1: Right, and I have such large cast in my books. I mean, I've got the four different perspectives there. And so it really sometimes comes down to, okay, who's who do I know whose name I haven't used yet? <laughs>
0: And make sure the names sound distinct because I can't stand when I'm trying to read a book and the names are so similar and I'm having to be like Mark and Mike. And, you know, and you're trying to keep up with all the differences. And so to have very distinct names is nice.
1: Yes, I watch the letter usage so that I don't have two M names right next to each other. And also I have twins. So when we named the twins, I was really cognizant of that as well. I didn't want a Sadie and a Sally, you know, so I have Sadie and Ruby. They're right next to each other in the alphabet, but (laughs) they're not the same letter.
0: Exactly. And probably nicer for them as well. Right. Well, what about writing your second novel versus writing your first novel? How did you find that?
1: I've heard authors talk about the sophomore slump. I don't think I experienced that with this novel. I think I am actually experiencing it now with my third novel. But that's because I had already written some of the second novel before I got my book deal for the first novel. So I really took that adage to heart, you know, just keep writing even while you're waiting for querying and hearing back from agents and that kind of thing. So I was really glad that I had the foundational elements of the novel ready to go. And I didn't feel that sort of pressure or overwhelm at writing it. However, like I said... I feel like I'm experiencing a little bit now with my third novel. It's just a little harder to get on the page because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what will the editor say? Will people like this part of it? You know, those kind of thoughts are running through my head. And I've got to remember, as Anne Lamott says, basically just to silence those voices while you draft and then let them back out when it's time to revise. (laughs)
0: But it has to be hard because once you have a book out in the world, you know what is going to be happening and who's going to be responding and just all of it. And so it would be difficult, I think.
1: Right. I do feel in a lot of ways like I'm living up to reader and my editor and agent's expectations in ways that I didn't feel like I had to do before because there weren't any expectations yet. Exactly.
0: And I guess with respect to the editor's expectations, I wouldn't think you'd worry quite so much about that because no one else is going to have seen the book except for your alpha readers and then your editor. But I guess you still want to make sure you impress him or her.
1: Yes. I want anything that people see, except for my mom, as I said, (laughs) to be as polished as possible. So I tend to turn in really polished drafts. That doesn't mean that I don't have to edit, but it means that I've laid eyes on it several times. I never send in a first draft to anyone.
0: Oh, absolutely. I can't imagine many people would, unless their first draft includes so much editing as they're writing. Because I think every once in a while, there are people who write and edit as they go, but I still think you'd have to go back and do several passes.
1: Yes, I probably do six to eight passes before my editor even sees it.
0: I could see that particularly with this one, just with all the different details and the dynamics and trying to keep certain things hidden, but have enough information coming out that you would really have to go back over it again and again.
1: Yes, because you've got to plant those little Easter eggs for people to find so that when they get to the end, they say, oh, this all kind of wrapped up together. I think of it as weaving a tapestry and having all of the little uh, different colors of thread weaving through it. And then when it all comes together, hopefully it's a beautiful picture.
0: Exactly. Well, have you watched Bad Sisters on Netflix?
1: I have. I have not finished it yet, but I loved it. And as soon as I watched the first episode, I emailed my agent and I said, does she ne- need ideas for a season two? <laughs> Which, of course, I don't know why my agent would know that. <laughs> I just watched it not that long ago, and
0: then I read your book, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to like put these two together in some kind of post. Market them together. You need to pick up on that, because I was like, yes. it's they're very different stories, but with the same similar idea of sisters that are very close and a man that's causing trouble.
1: Yes. And I love Sharon Horgan. Uh, I've watched other things that she's produced and I just really enjoy her storytelling. She's the oldest sister in Bad Sisters. Yeah. And the writer. Right.
0: I looked them all up afterwards because my husband kept saying, she looks really familiar to us. And I don't think I've seen her. I think she looks like somebody else we know, but I was looking up what what she had done. And yeah, she's, she is fabulous in that. I just can't recommend that show enough. There are times when it's not super fast paced, but you still need every single bit of it because it pulls all the details together. And I just thought it was very well done.
1: Right. It's a great slow burn kind of watch, but also has these really distinct moments of excitement all of a sudden as well, too.
0: I agree. And I feel like your book is more fast paced than that. But the premise, I was like, oh, how funny. So you need to really pick up on that for your marketing.
1: Okay. (laughs) Be like, tie (laughs) those
0: two together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what about the title and the cover?
1: The title, I Love It When You Lie, actually comes from a line that's towards the end of the book that I I won't give away because it is in a conversation with a couple of people who begin to restore their relationship somewhat. And so I believe that as I was doing one of my revision passes, I saw that line and it really just jumped out at me and I thought, oh, this is what it needs to be called. Before that, when I just had my working title and no one was seeing it yet, I was calling it Some Glad Morning. That's a line from the hymn, I'll Fly Away. Oh, that's right. Because that's such a a Southern classic hymn to be singing. And because the novel is set around Decoration Sunday, and part of Decoration Sunday in the past was having potluck on the ground and then also doing hymn singings. So I, that was the name at first, but of course, that wasn't compelling enough for a thriller or suspense. And I knew that, so I was looking for something else as I went. As for the cover of the novel, the rose there is also symbolic of Decoration Sunday. I knew that I wanted some kind of central element to that could be symbolic to attract the eye to the cover. And I think that they did a really good job with the placement of even the rose petals and the font being bright pink, that kind of thing. I think they did a great job.
0: I think so too. I really like the cover and I like its simplicity. So I have so many comments to everything you just said. Hopefully I can remember them all. (laughs) So the first is that I love when I'm reading a book and I see the title in the book. So I was so happy when I got to the end. Again, no spoilers as to when it's spoken. And I was like, oh, here's the title. And sometimes that must be difficult to try to figure out where you're going to land with a title, but I was happy to see it in the print. And then I'll Fly Away is one of my all-time favorite hymns. So I was also happy to see that in the book. I had just recently found a beautiful version of it that I've been listening to. So again, I thought, oh, this is so funny. Bad Sisters, I'll Fly Away. It's all in the book. And then last, Decoration Sunday, which we did not talk about. So I'm so glad you mentioned it. I was completely unfamiliar with that. Can you talk a little bit about what it is for others that are unfamiliar with it?
1: Yes. Decoration Sunday is a series of Sundays in the month of May in which relatives of the deceased go to their grave sites and they clean the graves, they add new gravel, they decorate with a bunch of flowers. So my grandmother always participated in Decoration Sunday, even up until the year she died when she was in her 80s. And it was really important for her to join with other people in this tradition. A lot of times her sisters would come out or uh, in the last couple of years of her life when her sisters died, she might see other people who were around her age out there doing this work as well. And it was an act of remembrance that was really physical and tangible. When my dad was a child, they still went to the cemetery that was attached to the church because a lot of his great grandparents were buried there before the graveyard filled. And so he told me about how they would have the potluck and then the hymn singing, and it would be a day long affair. So they would do service in the morning inside the church. Then they would go outside, they would set up tables, blankets, chairs, maybe tents. Somebody might get baptized in the creek, and then they would have the singing and put flowers all over the graves. So I just thought this was such a beautiful tradition that we are really losing. And my grandmother even talked about that. She said, you know, after my generation, no one's going to be doing this anymore. And there's actually a florist in Albertville, Alabama that you can call and they will take flowers to the grave and put it actually at the headstone of the deceased because people aren't living close enough often now to actually decorate the grave. So they'll kind of do that act for you.
0: I had never heard of that before. Is it a Southern thing, an Alabama thing?
1: It's a Southern Appalachian thing, from what I understand. My mom, when she found out I was going to be writing this book, she actually ordered me a book from Amazon (laughs) that was on Decoration Sunday. And I believe it's just called something like Decoration Sunday in the Appalachian foothills. And it has pictures and it has all of these different details about the tradition and how it started. And I believe some places, such as Louisiana, call it homecoming. It's similar, I believe, but not quite the same as Decoration Sunday. And some people believe that Memorial Day actually came out of this tradition.
0: This is all so fascinating. I love when I learn new things like this. And it was just something I was completely unfamiliar with. My grandparents are buried in Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. and it's one of those perpetual care cemeteries. So you can't put flowers out anyway, just fake flowers. And there's not a lot that can be done with the grave. But it's just not something I'd ever heard of before.
1: Yes. I also love novels where I learn something new. So I thought, I bet a lot of people haven't heard of this. And my editor actually lives in Canada. So she had certainly (laughs) never heard of this. It was new to her.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. (laughs) Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked?
1: I just finished Sarah Addison Allen's Other Birds. Have you heard of that one? I have. And for me, it was a rather... Like slow, sweet read. It was like drinking a cup of tea. (laughs) That's kind of what it felt like to me. I just needed something that wasn't action packed and that had a sweet story to it. So I enjoyed that one. I'm also, I just started a couple of nights ago, Mercury Pictures Presents by Anthony Mara. And that one is about the well, right after the heyday of Mercury Pictures. And I'm really enjoying the Italian immigrant. Part of the narrative. I'm really enjoying that.
0: I love anything set in older Hollywood, golden age, Hollywood Mm. silent film era. So I really enjoyed that one.
1: Oh, good. And then uh, I'm also reading Lessons in Chemistry with my twins at night. I'm having to skip over certain parts that aren't appropriate for them, but they are just loving it. (laughs) I mean, I had already read it last year and I really enjoyed it. So it's fun sharing that with them. Uh, Before that read, we read The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. We've tried to read kids' novels together, and someone is always uninterested, so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to read to them stories I've enjoyed, and then we'll go from there. <laughs> so, How old are they? My twins are nine, so they're very young for these books, <laughs> but like I said, I'm making them age-appropriate as I go, so I guess if... Uh, you can edit. yeah, Yeah, if they ever want to make younger versions of their book, I can help them. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're like I've already done that for them. Yep. My 19-year-old loves lessons in chemistry. It was her favorite book of last year.
1: Oh, mine too, actually. Yeah. yeah. So,
0: good. Well, yeah, she really enjoyed it. I just passed it to her cuz she loves to read and just gobbles up everything and I thought you might like this one because she's STEM and loves, mm. you know, science and math and all that. And so she just thought it was fabulous.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was storytelling great.
0: And I enjoyed it too. Oh, good. But it really resonated with her. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining me today. I can't wait for everybody to read. I love it when you lie. I just thought it was so much fun.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.